I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Adam Smith, considered by many to be the founder of economics, is often portrayed as an advocate for unfettered capitalism. But in his book, The Wealth of Nations, he wrote, People of the same trade seldom meet together for merriment and diversion, but that the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Of course, Smith did not think that this was a good thing. Antitrust legislation, laws to prevent companies colluding in a conspiracy against the public, have been on the books in America since the Sherman Act of 1890 and the Clayton and Federal Trade Commission Acts of 1914. President Biden has spoken of addressing issues of non-competitive behavior. Can he do so with current laws? What are they, and are they at all appropriate today, especially for the tech giants Meta, formerly Facebook, Alphabet, formerly Google, and other companies like Amazon? To address these issues, I'm joined today by Professor Dan Richards, my colleague at Tufts University. Dan is an expert in the field of industrial organization, a topic that covers issues like monopolies and laws that attempt to regulate them. Along with his wife and colleague, Lynn Papel, he's the co-author of the leading textbook in the field of industrial organization. Dan has served as a consultant to government agencies, including the Federal Trade Commission. Dan and Lynn have written a number of memos for Econofact on antitrust policy. Dan, very nice to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here, Michael. Thank you. Dan, let's begin by discussing why monopolies, or more broadly, companies that have a lot of market power, are viewed suspiciously, not just by Adam Smith, but by generations of economists and the public at large. Well, I think for the public, it's a question of having choice. When there's just one firm selling a product, there's no choice in there's a you feel fairly powerless against a, a firm that has that much concentrated economic power. But economists have recognized for a long time that when firms have to compete, they have a greater incentive to come up with uh, new quality or higher quality products to keep prices low, uh, to create a greater variety of products. And all those are benefits that competition brings to society at large. And if we don't have competition, we lose those benefits. The estimates by some are that not having those benefits costs the American economy uh, on the order of 5% of its annual GDP every year. So in recognition of this, governments have antitrust legislation. What are the main facets of U.S. antitrust legislation? Well, the U.S. has a set of laws, and you may know uh, all of the individual states have their own antitrust laws as well. But the U.S. has uh, basically two major laws. One is the Sherman Act of 1890, uh, and the other is the Clayton Act, an associated Federal Trade Act, 
of uh, 1914. And what do these laws do, Dan? Well, they're meant to preserve those benefits of competition that we talked about earlier. Uh, the two sections of the Sherman Act are very explicit. One is directly aimed at preventing colluding among firms to fix prices and keep them high. And the other is aimed at practices that firms might uh, engage in to abuse or obtain monopoly power. What about the Clayton Act? So the Clayton Act uh, came, uh, as I said, many years later, uh, the 20, 24 years later to be precise, uh, and it was aimed at trying to deal with practices that might give rise to monopoly power that didn't seem to be covered by the Sherman Act explicitly. That involved mergers. So instead of colluding, firms might just join together into one effective combination. Uh, price discrimination, which means selling at different prices to different people, which may uh, use that differential pricing to harm competitors. Tying arrangements, so that if you buy my printer, you also have to buy my print cartridges, and that may extend monopoly power from one market to the other. All those were practices that the FTC was created to police and to make sure that they weren't being used to extend or abuse monopoly power. Of course, it's not just the legislation, but also the way in which the rules are enforced. What's been the history of this? So that history is a rich one and somewhat complicated. From the 1930s to the 1960s, antitrust policy as practiced by both the courts and uh, uh, the antitrust agencies was very rigorous, <clears throat> lacked, however, a sort of solid foundation in economic theory to uh, uh, permit it to really accurately distinguish between actions that might be very pro-competitive and actions that might be uh, anti-competitive. And as a result, there were a number of actions taken that were not terribly sound from a policy standpoint. So the agencies blocked some mergers that involved very trivial market shares. Uh, they actually penalized some firm for lowering prices. And uh, there was an increasing dissatisfaction with that uh, aggressive approach. So did that lead to a backlash? Yes, it did. The backlash took initial form by way of what is often called the Chicago School, led by Robert Bork in his book, The Antitrust Paradox, which argued that uh, markets generally perform pretty well. Is that the same Robert Bork who had been nominated to the Supreme Court but did not get that seat? Well, it is the same Robert Bork. I don't think his not getting to the Supreme Court was so much because of his antitrust views, but basically... The Chicago School shared with the earlier antitrust enforcement regime uh, a very negative view of price-fixing conspiracies and felt that that was where antitrust policy should be focused. But it felt that when firms decide to merge or when they engage in price discrimination, they're really doing it for a reason that often is pro-competitive. That that's what the markets are generating and markets are a pretty good mechanism in this view to generate good results. So they only believed in basically one part of the Sherman Act. More or less, that's a good way to put it, I think. They typically thought that price fixing is something that we need to be aggressively prosecuting. But other than that, the antitrust laws could be pretty relaxed. And did this view come to dominate? 
it came to dominate the courts and to some extent infiltrated even into the agencies themselves, it is not what I would say is the view that dominates the uh, academic profession these days. A more modernist view, which is much more nuanced, that recognizes that uh, tying arrangements, uh, as we said, requiring that buyers buy not only my main project, but associated products, mergers, can have anti-competitive effects. Uh, they're not always the market working uh, well. So that's fine for the ivory tower, but when the rubber hits the road, the Chicago view has been dominating. And so given lax enforcement, have we seen increased concentration in U.S. industries? Yes. I mean, there's two parts of uh, your question, I think. Have we seen increased concentration and have we seen, as a result, decreased competition? We've certainly seen some increase in concentration. The top firms in many markets now have bigger market shares than they did 25 years ago. And that's to some extent, at least, due to the fact that uh, we've been permitting more mergers to take place than we used to. Uh, a very well-known study by The Economist magazine that came out in 2016 looked at 900 industries and found that concentration increased in over two-thirds of those. Roughly, the way they measure concentration is by looking at the share of total output in the industry that goes to the top four firms, what's called the uh, four-firm concentration ratio. And across all industries, that's increased on average from 26% to 32%. In some industries, much more than that. So that's a really catchy name, the four-firm concentration ratio. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> what about, Dan, what about the so-called superstar companies, Walmart, Amazon, Microsoft? That goes back to the point I made just a moment ago that part of the increase in concentration is due to perhaps relaxed mergers, but it's also due to the fact that superstar companies like the ones you just mentioned have emerged. And as they've grown bigger, that's increased the concentration, but it may not be a reflection of uh, a decline in competition in the sense that one reason they grew bigger is because they may have had a superior product that they could sell at the same price or they had uh, the same product that they could produce at a lower price. Uh, and so as they uh, have those advantages, they naturally grow bigger, but that's the process or the forces of competition working themselves out. And that makes it a little bit difficult to uh, work out what's, uh, whether the increased concentration, what that, in terms of what that means for the degree of competition. So there's a distinction between anti-competitive behavior and the fact that some of these firms just would sort of naturally become monopolies because they have these advantages. Yes, they, these firms enjoy a number of advantages, and you don't want to penalize firms that, or that compete and by coming up with a lower-cost way of doing things or coming up with a higher product. Firms that exploit those advantages, you don't want to penalize them from doing that. So um, that makes life a little bit more difficult for the antitrust authorities. So economics would suggest that this greater concentration would result in rising profit margins. Is that what's happened? I think there's no question that that's happened. That's some of the most startling evidence or striking evidence that we have is that uh, firms, uh, particularly the superstar firms, generally enjoy a high ratio of price to cost. Uh, the markup has increased uh, by anywhere from 20 to 40 percent over cost 
but again, that's partly because these firms have figured out a way to do things that, you know, Amazon and Walmart in particular figured out a way to do things at a lower cost than their earlier competitors. And in part, it's because of uh, less competitive actions that enjoy mergers and so forth that have given them monopoly power and enabled them to raise the price above the cost. So if companies are more concentrated and have a bigger slice of the pie, do the workers in those companies also tend to benefit? Well, what we can say is that in standard microeconomic modeling, uh, the labor share of the income that a company generates or that an industry generates is negatively related to the price cost margin. And as we've seen price cost margins rise, we would expect to see labor share fall. And we have seen labor share fall. The data are very clear about, on that, that labor share of the national income has fallen from 64% to 59%. Uh, and it's also very clear that the share of profits in the national income has increased and, and perhaps reached a, very close to an all-time high. Dan, when you're talking about concentration data, you're discussing it at the national level, but monopolies or concentrated industries can operate in local markets as well, right? They can. And I think one of the drawbacks of the national concentration data is that it may not give an accurate picture of what's happening at the local level. We may have a fair bit of competition in local markets where there are uh, uh, the same number of competitors as they as there always have been, but if the parent companies with those local competitors join at the national level, uh, then the concentration at the national industry level will go up. Whereas again, it's the local level may still be fairly competitive. Many markets like grocery stores, restaurants, medical services, legal services, are all organized at the local level. It takes a little bit of effort to figure out what's going on within individual geographic local markets. And that gives us a little bit of caution about how we interpret the national increase in concentration. The other thing I would say is that the national data is generally focused on the share of domestic firms in domestic production. It leaves out the potential pro-competitive effect of imports. Another issue related to local markets and market concentration isn't with firms as sellers, but firms as buyers, what economists call monopsonists. And in particular, the issue is whether or not a big firm in a local area has a lot of control over hiring. And by doing that, it can keep wages low. Is there much evidence on the role of firms in labor markets as monopsonists, as one of the biggest buyers of labor, or perhaps even the biggest buyer of labor in a particular area, and the consequences for that? There are a number of studies that show that the buying power, the buying monopoly power in local markets of firms has increased to the disadvantage of workers. And so what we call monopsony, is, as you pointed out, seems to have increased in local markets across the board. And some of the evidence that goes with that is we've seen a proliferation of no poaching clauses where, uh, uh, say, McDonald's will uh, ensure that owners of one franchise location are not allowed to hire other McDonald's workers from another franchise location, not, are not allowed to bid for their 
for their services in a way that would raise their wages. We've seen the proliferation of no-compete clauses, whereby workers have to agree that they leave the firm, they won't go to a competitor. And in general, we've seen increased concentration at the local level that has certainly disadvantaged workers over the last 20 to 30 years. And again, that's part of the explanation for why we've seen a decline in labor share of income. Dan, the Sherman and the Clayton Acts were prompted by railroads and oil companies. Is there a fundamental difference in antitrust when we think about big tech rather than big oil or a railroad cartel? I don't think there's a a great difference in the sense that we're really worried about monopoly power either way. There is a difference in that the railroads, perhaps oil, became monopolistic in part because they were able to exploit scale economies that naturally gave rise to large firms, particularly the railroads, I think, in that case. Whereas the effects that give rise to monopolies among some of the big tech firms, like Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, now Meta, are what we call network effects, whereby through the demand side, there's a scale effect by which as more people use Facebook, for example, more other users get more value from Facebook, and so they want to use it. So there's a natural feedback effect on the demand side that makes these companies large. So I don't think there's a difference in the fundamental concern about monopoly, but there is a difference in the source of the market dominance that these companies have. Another common element is that uh, in both cases, people are worried about the large political power that these large firms can exercise outside of their market power. So there's a political and not just an economic dimension to antitrust. Well, there certainly is in the current environment. People are very, very worried about the political power and influence that uh, large companies like Google and uh, Apple and others may exercise. Uh, I don't think that should be the focus of antitrust policy, but it is certainly something that informs our views of these very large corporations. So, Dan, what do you think should be happening with antitrust laws now? Well, I think that we need to adopt more of the modernist view than the Chicago view in our uh, enforcement and uh, in the courts. I think that would basically mean that we continue to be diligent about price fixing conspiracies. I think we've done a reasonably good job there. Uh, I think it means also that we should be stricter in our merger controls, that we should challenge more mergers, uh, in particular mergers that might be cases in which a large firm like Facebook is acquiring somebody that could be a potential competitor. By way of example, Facebook, you know, when they acquired Instagram several years ago, uh, Instagram could have emerged as a as a competitor to Facebook. And I think it would have been better had that merger been challenged. Maybe too little, too late to do anything about that, but we can look to be attentive to those opportunities in the future. There's a concern there that the merger squelched innovation. Yes, I think that is a, a general concern that we need to be paying more attention to. It's not just prices, because it's very difficult to show that there's been much impact on prices, particularly to the users of Facebook, because they pay, you know, they don't really pay anything. But the the fact that we may have suppressed innovation in the development of new ways of, of providing social networks and new social networking uh, attributes and features, those kinds of concerns are something that we need to have more on the radar of, of antitrust enforcement. And as we're recording this, there is news today 
of a possible merger between two low-cost airlines, Frontier and Spirit. So this merger, too, would be anti-competitive, but not necessarily along the dimension of innovation, but of prices, right? Well, I think that that uh, that is a concern. I'm sure that Frontier and Spirit will try to present the case that they have cost efficiencies that will make them a, a more competitive airline and be able to bring prices down. But I think that together they will comprise the fourth or fifth largest airline in the U.S. market, and that is will give them considerable power. And of course, you're merging together two of the low-cost competitors. So there's a concern that you're directly putting together two firms that really were providing competition, uh, and so eliminating one of them by virtue of subtraction. So yes, I think that's a merger that the FTC will be very, very likely to challenge. And what about regulations and rules for what we've called this monopsonous behavior, behavior that limits the ability of workers to move from one firm to another? Well, I think we've seen the FTC take that more and DOJ take more of those cases on recently and to challenge those practices. Remains to be seen how the courts will deal with them, but I think there's hope that those kinds of practices will be increasingly challenged by the antitrust authorities, and I think that's a good thing. So what we're facing is a possible wide range of regulations and rules and maybe even some new laws to address anti-competitive behavior by companies, both for hiring people and for selling things, and as you mentioned, for lots of other things like tying arrangements or price discrimination. So Dan, you really help lay out these issues in a very comprehensive and clear way, and thanks for doing so, and thanks for being on Econofact Chats. It's been my pleasure, Michael. Thank you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. You can subscribe on our site to our newsletter that will let you know when we publish new memos and new podcast episodes. Please feel free to share this podcast and our memos with friends, colleagues, and on social media. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.